My name is Charles Johnson. I'm one of the pastors here at Red Mountain. It is a delight to see each of you. If we have not met, I would love to meet you. So please, after the service, come up and say hi. Uh, I promise I won't make it awkward, or I'll try not to. But please come say hi to me. I would love to, I would love to meet you, get to know you just a little bit. Uh, this morning, we're beginning a new series. Last week, we just concluded our series uh, on uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians. And this morning, what we're going to do, I'm really excited to do this. We're going to jump back into the Old Testament and look at some historical narrative examining in First and Second Samuel the stories about the life of David. And we're going to trace uh, his, the, the, his ascendancy to the throne of Israel, and we'll look at a couple stories after uh, he arrives at the throne of Israel. And uh, as we get into this, we're really dropping in to a much larger story about God's dealing with his people and the history of God's dealing with his people. And uh, as we get going, things are not going well for God's people uh, in Israel. In fact, uh, several chapters before the one that I'm going to read to you, uh, the people came to Israel, came to their prophet Samuel, and they asked him if they could have a king so that they could be like all the other nations, their, their neighboring nations. And uh, until then, God had ruled them through spirit-appointed judges or leaders who he raised up to deliver them during times of crisis or need. And so when they go to Samuel and ask for a king, what they're really doing is rejecting God's divine rule over them. But God says to Samuel, obey the voice of the people, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And the king they get is King Saul. Now, in the eyes of the people, King Saul is a very ideal king. Uh, He was rugged and handsome. He came from a family of wealth. There's a lot of talk about how tall uh, Saul is that seems to matter. Uh, and, uh, and it comes up a lot in, the, in these passages. Uh, and there were some good moments in Saul's rule. He did achieve some key victories for his people. But overall, when you look at the trajectory of his leadership over the people of Israel, you can really only call it an unmitigated disaster. In the last verses in chapter 15, right before chapter 16, we're going to look at Uh, read this way. It says that Samuel went home to Ramah and did not see Saul again until the days of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And it's right here in this low point in the life of God's people, amidst a, a lost people serving under a lost king, that David gets introduced to us. And that's where we'll pick up. Let's look together. This is 1 Samuel 16. I'll read verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. 
and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, we are grateful to be gathered before you and all of us gathered under the good authority of your word. I pray that you would be at work among us, Holy Spirit, speaking to us, leading us by the hand, helping us to hear from you what you would have us hear as we look at this story. And would you help me to serve these people well, to love them well, and to honor you with these words that I say. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So you know what's really fun? When you go to a movie with low expectations, and then you emerge from that movie realizing, hey, that was really, I really had a great time. I think low expectations are really key to enjoying most of life. Uh, but I remember this feeling many, many years ago. I, th- I, I think it might have been 20 years ago. I remember that distinct feeling of surprising joy as I came out of a movie uh, with my buddies. I mean, it was just a random decision to go see this. We went, we had a good time. And uh, you've probably heard of it. It was a movie called The Replacements. Uh, the Replacements. It was set in a kind of just barely fictitious. Oh, let me just, I got to make this qualifier. It's probably been two decades. I have no idea if this is an edifying or good. I, okay, don't go home and say, Charles told me I should see this movie. All I'm telling you is that back then that was fun, okay? Um, but, but, uh, but what it is, it's set in this like bare, just barely fictitious scenario where uh, all of the professional football players go on strike. And, uh, and the, the, these professional players are kind of seen as prima donnas. That's the way they're portrayed. And they're not missed much. They're kind of hard to root for. 
Uh, and, uh, and so it, this team has to stack their players with replacement players. This actually happened uh, in the, I think, 87. There was a strike. So it, you know, it was kind of set in that idea. But these replacement players were people who, who were athletic. They had glory days in college, couldn't quite break into the league. And they're super quirky and lovable. And what they are is they're easy to root for. And, uh, and Keanu Reeves plays a quarterback, and Gene Hackman plays a coach. It's totally absurd, so what's not to love? And the thing that I think is so fun about, you know, that movie is that it really is an underdog story. And, uh, and we love underdog stories. And in some ways, we're looking at something of an underdog story in this passage. We've got a replacement king. Uh, David for Saul, and it's a rags-to-riches story. The son of a shepherd becomes the next king over Israel. And it would be really easy for us to look at these stories over the next, you know, through the spring when we're in it, and kind of see it as almost akin to something that's a feel-good movie. Because we're going to, in a lot of ways, even in his lowest moments, we'll find it easy, I think, to root for David. But it would be a mistake to do that to these stories, and I'll tell you why. Because behind each of these stories is a, is, a, is a grand proclamation about just what God is up to with his people in his world. It is describing for us, as we look at David's rule, it is describing for us, either in contrast or in parallel, God's rule. And it is telling us something about God's heart for his people, his ways with his people, his desires for his people. And indeed, his desires for the whole world. And so what I'm going to do is work through this story and name just a few things that I see going on in this passage that might speak to us. And here's what they are. I'm going to say that God commissions a journey shrouded in mystery, making an unlikely choice. Okay? Commissions a journey shrouded in mystery, making an unlikely choice. First, he commissions a journey. Look again at verse, it's not verse 16, it's verse 1. Okay, I wrote it down wrong in my notes. In verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king, a new king. Among his sons, what God did was he commissioned a journey, uh, commissioned Samuel for a journey. But what does the journey itself tell us? Well, one thing it's telling us is uh, God's decisive actions. And when God speaks to a grieving man, like he did in this passage, it's important for us to realize that God is also someone who is well acquainted with grief. And there are stories of the things that grieve God's heart that run throughout the Bible. Let me just give you a couple of examples. In Genesis 6, before the flood, as he's surveying uh, the state of the world and the wickedness of his people, the passage says, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Psalm 78 says, how often they rebelled against God in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. And the common thread throughout the Bible is that God feels it deeply when his people rebel. This is something that's real, and the common thread is the rebellious heart of his people. And that's exactly what we have here in the story of Saul. That, That what was grieving Samuel 
was the rebellious heart of Saul. And so when we look at, uh, when God speaks to Samuel, he's not begrudging him his grief. In fact, in a lot of ways, in Samuel, we're getting a picture of, the, of, of a godly grief. But what he does is he calls him to action. To God, at some point, the time for mourning is over, and it's time to begin again. And the astounding thing that we see when God decides to begin again is God's resilient faithfulness for his people. Remember, this was the people who rejected God's rule. But what's amazing is that even though God rejects Saul's authority over his people, God never rejected the people themselves. In fact, what we see in this passage is God making decisive moves on behalf of his people, acting for the good of his people, even despite the will of his people. You see his resilient faithfulness against the backdrop of his people's unfaithfulness. Let me tell you about a tattoo that I never got. I don't have anything against tattoos. Um, I don't have one myself, and I think it's just because I don't have the courage for a tattoo. But, uh, but years ago, um, when I was working for a church, working with, uh, with adolescents, and um, this was a time when I was dealing, I'll just say, I was just dealing with a lot of shame. Uh, there, were, there were sins that were like right at the front of my head. There were things that people had said to me that were really difficult that I couldn't quite forget. And I was really wrestling with the idea that at some point God's just going to give up on me. That, that, that my faithfulness, unfaithfulness would lead God to, to just give up on me. And I was working at this church and, uh, and uh, I noticed uh, this church had a logo that it never really caught my eye until I read the explanation of it in the front page of the, their worship booklet, their version of our worship booklet. And, uh, and it's really interesting because their logo is, is actually a lot like ours. Uh, it, you've probably seen this before in various places. It's not a rare tattoo to get, I don't think, but, but it's, this is a Celtic cross. And there are a lot of different versions of this logo but, uh, but there are two important things to notice. The first is that you have this cross. And, of course, that symbolizes Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. His final dealing with all of our guilt and our shame and renewing us. But the other thing that you see here is a circle. And that circle is crucial. A circle is a sign of eternity and represents to us God's eternal love. That just like you can run your finger around that circle, so you can trace the arc of God's love for you and never find an endpoint. And I used to take that worship booklet home after church, and I would sit in my bedroom and I would run my finger around that circle. And I would ask God, Would you just help me to believe that this is true? And if I ever wanted to put something on me that I would see in the mirror every day as a reminder, it would be that. One of the things I want you to see is that God is moving in important ways on behalf of his people in spite of all the ways they have already rejected him. This is deeply embedded in God's character that even though our sin is real, The sin of our heart is real. 
and, and it has the power to grieve. And that grieve, grief is not misplaced. That his faithfulness to you is resilient. You cannot outrun it. You can't even outlast it. It is the primary player in the story of God's dealing with his people. And that is true. Even when you can't see it. Even at times when you can't feel it. And what's profound to me about this whole story is the way this whole journey is shrouded in mystery. Did you notice that? Like all throughout this story, we've got a lot of partial truths. I mean, the passage is laden with the communication of partial truths. God commissions Samuel for a journey, and Samuel says, "What? I, I can't make that journey because Saul, when he hears about it, he'll kill me. That would be right out of the playbook. A totally understandable fear. And so what does God do? He comes up with a plan and says, take a heifer, that's a young cow, and go, go, to, the, uh, go to the town uh, with a, uh, offering a sacrifice. And that's what Samuel did. Now, that's not a lie, but it's not the whole truth either. In fact, he's running in, in a kind of a partial truth that he repeated to the elders who were afraid of him when, they, when he showed up at the gates of their town, partial truth. We also see partial instructions. He's clear. What is he clear with uh, Samuel about? He tells him to fill up his horn with oil. That obviously means he's going to anoint somebody. He gives him a town to go to, the Bethlehem. Uh, He gives him a person whose sons he's going to choose from, Jesse. But he also says, but all along the way, Samuel is led by the continuing guiding hand of the Lord. Look at verse 3. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. Go there. Do these things, go there, and then I'll show you what to do next. This is this partial instructions. He doesn't lay out a, 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 a totally clear roadmap for him. He gives him partial instructions. And then we see partial awareness. Who in this story knows what's going on? One person. The, 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 he doesn't tell the town elders. They have no idea what's going on. Jesse and his sons don't know why they're walking before Samuel. We don't even get the impression that David knows what's going on when this happens. This is a seminal moment in the history of God's people, and nobody knows what's happening. So you have partial awareness. There's partial partial instructions, partial uh, truths, partial awareness. That's why I'm saying this is shrouded in mystery, that these important things got moving in dramatic ways in their midst, and nobody can even see it or notice it. And I point this out because God's worry, God's word is always telling stories of what God is up to in the world, and the people often don't really know what's going on. Every now and then I wonder what Abraham thought when God said to him, go to the place that I will show you. Just go. Or like what the disciples thought when Jesus says, go into the city and wait for power from on high. I can, I can almost imagine them squinting at Jesus and saying, okay, then what? There's a story in Habakkuk, 
Habakkuk, Habakkuk, I'm doing that thing again, huh? When the prophet cries out to God, how long will this continue? Your people are suffering. Justice is perverted. The wicked are prevailing. He's asking the question, what are you doing, God? I heard someone say something similar to this on the phone with me just this week. I know God's promises are true. I know they were true yesterday, and I know they'll be true tomorrow. But I have no idea what God is up to. That is a question we feel deep in our bones, is it not? It's a question that we ask when our homes feel like they're in disarray, or some of our most important relationships are difficult. The question we feel when we're wrestling with the, own, the sin in our hearts that just continues to pop up again and again and again. What are you doing? Are you near me? Or have you given up on me? Listen, I haven't been a pastor long. But I can tell you this. That often the questions I can't answer about who God is and what he's doing far outnumber the questions that I can. That there are times where God is unclear with his people about just what he's doing. But he does want us to be clear about a number of things. That he is faithful to his people. That he is always moving on their behalf even when they can't understand it. And he promises them that their story ends well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's pretty clear, isn't it? We can steward a lot of ignorance. And we can suffer a lot of ignorance when we know that's true. And so I don't claim to understand all the time why he allows what he allows. I can't offer always understanding of exactly what's going on. But I can tell you this, that God is calling us to trust him and proving to us in his word, revealing himself to us that he moves in love and he promises something good to us. That's the thing about faith that drives us nuts, isn't it? That it's a call to trust but it's not always a call to know. But that's what he's calling us to in this story. He's calling us to trust him because his ways are higher than our ways. And he knows things that we don't know. And he sees things that we don't see. And this is especially evident to us as he makes an unlikely choice. In fact, he makes an unlikely choice that none of us probably would have made. And we get this stark contrast between what man sees and what God sees. Remember how we got to this point. Saul was the people's choice. The the people looked at Saul and thought he was kingly material. He was tall and handsome. He was from wealth. And yet our eyes deceive us all the time, do they not? Machiavelli was known for once saying that men in general judge more from appearances than from reality. He said, all have eyes, but few have the gift of penetration. 
And it seems, what's amazing to me is that it seems that even Samuel was about to make the same same mistake. In verse 6, look, surely Eliab shows up, the oldest son. He's obviously physically impressive to Samuel. And and, uh, Samuel thinks, surely this is the next king. He's tall and strong and fit for the throne. And then God tells us something very important about himself when he speaks to this directly in verse 7. He says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so the parade of Jesse's sons come and go. Eliab and Shema. And another one whose name I can't remember right now. But then Samuel turns to Jesse and says, are these all your boys? And Jesse says, there remains yet the youngest. That could also be translated the smallest. There is a derisive and a dismissive tone behind that word. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. David was such an unlikely choice that he wasn't even brought to the sacrifice with the rest of them. In fact, his name isn't even included in the story until the very end. But there was one thing, one thing only that God was looking for in the person that would serve his people. Three chapters ago, God said this. I put it right at the beginning of your worship uh, booklet. He said, I will choose someone after my own heart. There's some irony in this passage when it notes that God was, or that David was ruddy and handsome and had beautiful eyes. None of that had anything to do with why David was chosen. David was chosen for one reason, and one reason only. Because when God looked at him, he saw a man after his own heart. That's what God saw when he looked at David. Friends, as we spend the spring looking at stories of David, we're going to see what it looks like for someone whose heart is all bound up in God's. But listen, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be free of pain and suffering. Sometimes, in fact, it's his heart for God that leads him right into trouble. It it also means this heart for God doesn't necessarily mean that, that he's free of sin either. We're going to see him wrestle deeply with sin and the effects of his sin. But what we are going to see is that a heart for God is one that looks to God one that's willing to cry out to God in need, one that repents quickly, one that trusts God with the things that are most important to him. That's what we're going to look at. And in David's best moments, we're going to see a greater David. We're going to see Jesus himself. Because in so many ways, God was already training his people to, to look with eyes for Jesus to come. And I love My favorite part of this is the story about how David is tending the sheep. He's tending the sheep when Samuel comes to town. Because even then, God was turning our hearts to consider a king who will come from Bethlehem. One who the prophet Isaiah was careful to mention had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. One who would call himself the good shepherd. A good shepherd who knows his sheep, who never leaves his sheep, who would even lay down his life for his sheep. 
And there's a story about where Jesus was looking at a crowd of people running around with his disciples. And it said that he had compassion on them because they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. Let me ask you, do you you feel a little helpless this morning? Is it possible that you're facing things that outstrip your ability to face them? Do you feel harassed? Yes, often I do. I want you to see here that God doesn't begrudge your need of a shepherd. In fact, before we even drew our first breath, he was working to provide for us one in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me pray. So we ask you to build us in faith, O God. And we ask you to help us to see you, Jesus. And we ask you to be at work in us, Holy Spirit, that you would take our hearts and turn them to the Lord. I pray that you might see that among us as you look at us. So encourage us, edify us, convict us of our sin, and make yourself the object of our greatest affections. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.